0: Please, take your Bibles and turn together again to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We'll read verse number 22. Again, just a, a springboard for prayer, a springboard to come this portion together. Romans 11, verse 22 says this Behold, God. On them which fail severity, but towards thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Please, bear with me in prayer, let's look to the Lord. Again, for his help to come and study the word of the Lord today. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee really very profoundly aware of our need again today. We need thee, O Lord, in a sin-torn world. We need the in our own personal lives and experiences. We need the word of God to come and nourish and help us in our souls. And yet we're mindful, dear Father, of uh, how many different ways people, good men, have taken these verses over the years. And so we come humbly. Pray, O Lord, that those things that are according to your will will be driven to the hearts. That which is chaff we be blown away, O Lord. We pray you'd guard me the preacher from saying such things, but recognizing that can happen, we pray for grace in the application of the word. Help us, O Lord, to know and to believe the truth of God and to come with a good conscience as preacher and hearer alike, that we want to know the mind of God. Speak to us again today. May the word indeed be a benefit to our souls as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I think it's somewhat strange that a passage that is directly applied to Gentiles, has been used to develop so many various theories regarding Jews and national Israel without making the proper application to the Gentiles. Verse 13 explicitly says, For I speak to you Gentiles. Now, of course, it does explain the situation regarding Jewish unbelief in the times of Paul. It does give much detail regarding the nature of God's covenant dealings with his people Israel. But we must never delight in the theological theorizing and speculation of this passage and in so doing miss the application that is directed to our souls as Gentiles. The main point is that we are not to be proud. It is a passage Exhorting Gentile believers to humility in the face of God. You have the language there of verse number 18. Boast not against the branches. And then later on down in verse number 20. Be not high minded but fear. And so in all of the conversations regarding Israel. Their rejection of Jesus the Christ. And any future prospects of grace in all of these things, make sure that the end of your study is a humble heart before God, that you come before the Lord, walking with Him in godly fear. You see, Paul in verse eleven and twelve has highlighted the necessity of Gentile salvation in the purpose of God. It is God, it's God's will the Gentiles like you and me that we would come to know and love the Saviour. And in Paul's own day, part of the purpose for that, part of the purpose in God of Gentile salvation was to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You have that there, verse 11. Through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, that is his brethren, that is the Jews, to provoke them to jealousy. Why would that be the case? Well, it is that they would leave off their unbelief and come to know Jesus as their Savior. It is to uh, promote them in the ways of righteousness only found in Christ alone. And so you have then verse number 12, that the fall of them be for the benefit of people like you and me, but also there's the hope and the prospect that their fullness, i.e. the salvation of Jews, could also redound to the praise and glory of God in the world. And so there is a recognition here of a bird in the Apostle Paul. And that leads into verse number 13. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. That was Paul's commission. You have that in his his conversion in the words of Ananias. He is to be the apostle to go into the Gentiles. And we see that worked out in the book of Acts. But as he is an apostle of the Gentiles... He glorifies, he magnifies that office. How? He's exalting his office as he preaches Christ to the Gentiles. And so, verse number 14 says, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh. Now, the word provoke to emulation is the same word that's used previously in the passage regarding provoking to jealousy, very same word. And so the idea here is that Paul, as he preaches, may do the very work of God in provoking his own flesh to jealousy. Why, verse fourteen? They might save some of them. That's the seal that proves the principle. Why does God save Gentiles in this first-century context? He is saving Gentiles in the setting. That they would be provoking the Jews to jealousy with the ultimate aim, not of their anger, but of their salvation. It is not that they are moved to jealousy as an end of itself. It is that their move being moved to jealousy then stirs up their soul to investigate the word of God to assess the apostolic teaching and come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ the only saviour of sinners and therefore they are saved. That's Paul's burden. What a burden that is. The apostle recognises that by God's grace he can be an instrument in the hand of God to save We believe salvation is of the Lord, but we also believe that God is pleased to use his church to bring about the salvation of a multitude that no man can number. What a great burden that is. But as he emphasised his burden and his purpose, he has to address a problem. And the problem is, I believe, implied in the words of strong exhortation and rebuke. He says to them, boast not against the branches and be not high-minded. He is highlighting uh, what is deemed to be thought of in the Roman church, that there was an increasing problem with a Gentile pride towards Jews. And Paul says that must stop. Gentile arrogance against Jews is not according to the will of God, says the Apostle Paul. We must not be proud and high-minded, but fear. And so how does Paul address the problem? He does what every good Bible teacher will do. He teaches. You know, when it comes to dealing with matters of sin and challenge in the church of Christ, it is the duty of the Bible teacher to teach. To teach biblical principle in such a way that right thinking will lead to right feeling and will lead to right action. And so Paul takes time to instruct here. It is a proper understanding that leads to proper action. And so he's doing that. He's going to take some time to instruct the people of God and to move their minds in a way of manner of understanding. And so there are two things I've left with you uh, today in in your outline. First of all, Paul seeks to help them to understand the method of God's grace. And then secondly, to understand the message of God's grace. Uh, One is directly, if you like, in the passage, the other is brought out by implication. So let's first of all think about this, understanding the method of God's grace. Uh, He uses an illustration. There is this matter of the olive tree. There's a reference to root and branches and the tree, verse number 17. And as some of the branches be broken off and now being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. I've confessed this before. I am no horticulturalist. And there are aspects of this that I confess I've had to rely very heavily upon people who know what they're talking about because I don't. But there are things here that are fairly plain and simple to understand. And whilst we may not understand all that's going on here, I trust we can make it clear regarding God's will. There is certainly, by Paul here, an extended use of an olive tree metaphor. And it's going all the way down to the end of verse number 24. And what's he trying to say? What is this olive tree? Now, For a long time, I had kind of the understanding that the olive tree referred to national Israel and the people of national Israel. If you don't think that, and that's not your mind, and you weren't down that line, fine. But I was. And I think while that is a connected thought, I don't think it does justice to all that is said regarding the olive tree here. So again, I'm going to ask you to gird up the loins of your minds and think this through carefully with me And analyze what the word of God says and try to come to a proper understanding of this metaphor. The first thing we see regarding this olive tree metaphor is that the olive tree is holy. You've got language used here in verse number 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. What you're seeing there is he's taking the concept, verse 16, of the first fruits. There was the first fruits of the harvest. And so it was the people of God's responsibility to offer that as, as heave or wave offerings to the Lord and present that to the Lord. And in so doing, they were they were essentially setting apart the entire harvest. This is this is this is from God. And worshiping God in the offering of the first fruits. But you get over, over Numbers 15, turn very quickly to Numbers 15. And you'll see a more direct reference in Numbers 15 to the idea of a dough and, and a lump. Numbers 15, verse 17, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land, whither I bring you, then it shall be that when ye eat of the bread of the land, ye shall offer up an heave offering unto the Lord, and ye shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough, for an heave offering. Again, this idea of offering to God the first fruits of their harvest and of the blessing of God. And Paul's point back in in Romans is that in the offering of the first fruits, there was a recognition that God had given them what they were granted, and these things were were set apart by God. And I mention that because I think that's the sense of the word holy here. It's not referring to, to a moral uprightness and integrity. It's referring to something that is set apart unto God. Because that's the root meaning of the word holy. The application then comes that those who are set apart to God are marked by godliness and Christ likeness and moral integrity. We should be holy people. But in its, in its foundational meaning it has the sense of being set apart to God. And Paul is saying, as that is true of the, of the lump from the first fruit, so it is true of the branches that are attached to the root. And so you have a set apart root. Now, that root likely refers to the patriarchs. They're mentioned in verse number 25, 28, sorry. They are beloved, so that is the people of God, are beloved for the fathers sick and so it's likely that what is happening here is a recognition that in time God set apart Abraham called him from Ur of the Chaldees and he becomes you know, like the the first fruits Of this new olive tree, Uh, again, I know it was back before Abraham, but in, in covenantal terms, God enters a covenant with his people in and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then with the people of God through Moses. And there is the beginning of that, the root of that, in the times of the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that sense, the people of God are set apart, they are holy. Okay, so this metaphor, first thing, it's holy. Second thing, though, to note is it is possible to be removed from this. That's the whole point, isn't it? Verse 17, if some of the branches be broken off. And that's an important thing to remember. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move very quickly here on from that point, but that's a really, really important principle. Whatever this olive tree metaphor is, it is possible be taken away from it. Thirdly, but please keep the second thing in your minds, it is possible to be grafted into this olive tree. Now here again where I have to depend upon horticulturalists. There are various thoughts making probably too much of this metaphor and all manner of conclusions that come from from what is happening here. Like verse 24 is, is interesting and, and somewhat challenging. If thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted country to nature into a good olive tree. Now what Paul is saying there is that what has happened to Gentiles is that they were the wild olive tree and they were removed from their, if you like, their, their wild roots and they were grafted in. So you... I, I, please correct me, I think you cut part of the of the branch and you cut part of the roots and you stick them together and you tie them off and they, and they eventually grow together in some way. I plead ignorance, but I think it's something like that. There's an adding of the wild to the good olive tree. That's the idea. The grafting here is about addition. And as some branches can be broken off, so it's possible for wild branches to be added into this olive tree. Grafted in. Now again there are those who make the point that ordinarily the usual practice is to graft and cultivate a cultivated olive tree. And it's unusual to bring a wild branch into the good unless you want to reinvigorate a failing cultivated olive tree. And so a feeling cultivated tree is beginning to wither and die, and you then get a wild branch and you put that in, and it brings the original cultivated, branch, the original cultivated tree uh, back to some manner of life. Verse 15, life from the dead. That would fit very well with the idea that the Jewish olive, the Jewish olive tree is dying and withering through unbelief, um, but God then brings the Gentile branches and brings it all back into life. That, I think, is the meaning of the metaphor here. So, what are the first three things? It's holy, set apart to God. You can be broken off from this olive tree. But you can also be added into this olive tree. You can be grafted into Fourth thing, it's a single olive tree. There's only one. There's not a Gentile olive tree. And a Jewish olive tree. One and on the same in the purposes of God. Fifthly, union with this tree is by faith. Again, you have the language of faith all the way through this verse number 20. Well, because of unbelief, they are broken off, and thou standest by faith. So, those are kind of like there are five, and there's more than five, but there are five important principles that we cannot argue about with regard to this single olive tree. So therefore it is my mind that the olive tree cannot simply represent national Israel. Because you cannot break off Jews from national Israel ethnically. That's what they are. They are always ethnically Jewish. And so, in that sense, they are not being broken off their natural, national identity. Nor can the olive tree speak of spiritual salvation. It can't simply mean this is the the true, saved people of God. Because you can be broken off. and So you can be saved and lost. And so what I think is involved here is that this olive tree represents and pictures... The promises of the covenant of grace. I think this represents the promises that were made to Abraham. Into which Gentiles become members. Because these covenantal promises. They did belong in their root to the patriarchs. That they were granted those promises. And those promises belonged to national Israel in the Old Testament. Well, we've already noticed that in chapter nine, verse number three, it says there. Verse four: Who are the Israelites to him? Pertain to the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving the law, the service of God, and the promises. So, so to national Israel, out of the roots that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, come these, these wonderful promises, and the Gentiles come to receive these promises through faith in Christ Jesus, but the Jews. They don't enter into the promises through unbelief. They are, they are theirs covenantally in the Old Testament. But they reject their Christ. And therefore they are separate from the promises. But the Gentiles are now brought into those promises by faith in Christ Jesus. Now if you, if you know your Bible you will know immediately where we should turn. And that is the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there please. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. And this is a very, very fitting parallel passage to help us understand what is happening here. Because, again, what we see in Romans 11. In Romans 11, we're seeing Gentiles afar off, but then grafted in. And what happens when they're grafted in? Well, verse number 12 tells us, Ephesians 2, verse 12, tells us Gentiles afar off. That at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was their status as Gentiles. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes are far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so you go across to verse number 17. He came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Verse 19, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. They are no longer strangers from the covenant of promise. They are now recipients and members of those covenantal privileges. And I think that's the most helpful parallel to understand the language of Romans chapter 11. So what therefore is God's method of grace? That's our heading. Understand God's method of grace. What has God done in grace in human history? Well, he set apart Abraham. And he made with Abraham a covenant, Genesis 15, that had tremendous spiritual promises. Promises that Abraham believed and was reckoned to him for righteousness, Romans chapter 4. But the Jews have been cut off from those promises through unbelief, but now Gentiles are recipients of the promises turned back from Ephesians to Galatians chapter 3. And if you like to seal of this matter and hopefully seal the argument in your minds... Galatians chapter 3. Again, you have an extended treatment of God's blessing of Abraham, his covenantal arrangement with Abraham entering these promises. You have there in verse number 7, "'Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith.'" Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. The root is holy. The promises of redemption are given to Abraham, but those promises had a future prospect of nations entering those promises and knowing the blessings of God to Abraham. So, verse number nine So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Not because of their ethnicity but because of their affection and allegiance to Christ Jesus. And so verse 14 says this, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The previous verses really outline what Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 2. We are brought nigh by the blood of Christ. What is that blood of Christ? It is the fact that Christ took our curse. And being made a curse for us, we then came to redemption. And what is that redemption? The redemption is entering into the promises that God made with Abraham. And we come to also enjoy those promises. Verse 26 of Galatians 3. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seat and heirs according to the promise. You see how clear it is? What brings them into the promises? Faith in Christ. What brings Gentiles into the olive tree in Romans 11? Faith in Christ. And so the holy promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob extended to national Israel, but they reject those promises, are now given to Gentiles, so that people like you and me can enjoy those very same spiritual blessings. Neither Jew nor Greek, born nor free, but all one in Christ Jesus, having received the promises of God's grace. So how does God communicate grace to sinners? Through a single covenant of grace through determination to promise redemption to people through christ jesus a single covenant of grace secured by the blood of a mediator his own dear son his death secures those promises and they are available to all and any who believe in christ jesus that's what god has done in ministering his grace to our souls Covenant, mediator, offered to all who believe in him. That's what Romans 11 is detailing regarding the method of God's grace. So there, if that's the method, what is the message that flows out of that? And again, once you understand, I think, the the kind of the method of God's dealing with people in in this olive tree, uh, then I think the rest becomes pretty clear. First of all, you'll see in your outline, grace received by faith in Christ alone. What I'm saying there is, the only way to enter the promises of God's grace is to trust in Christ alone. It mustn't tire this. You know, If you come to the church here and you don't know Christ, and the time comes when you decide to leave the church and go somewhere else, whatever happens in your mind, I don't know the future for all of us. I want you to be clear that when you reflect back upon life in this church, you were consistently told that the only way to be saved is by trusting in Christ alone, that you're left in no doubt or confusion, that when the times we preach upon moral duties and responsibilities, you understand those flow out of a saving relationship with God through Christ Jesus. You must believe in Christ to be saved. So faith is indeed essential. I make that point here. Look at verse number 20. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. What makes a difference here between the Jew and the Greek? Paul, Paul, he almost removes all manner of ethnic diversity in this statement. Yes, he understands there are differences in God's dealing with people in history. But at this point he's saying, the big question is, do you believe the gospel? Have you come to trust in Christ? Have you left your sin and clung upon Christ to save you from that sin? Have you believed the gospel? Because verse number 22 is very, very stark in the language used. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. On them which fail severity... But toward the goodness. Faith is essential. Because outside of faith in Christ. There is the severity of God. Not the goodness of God. There is no neutrality. It is not that God is going to. If you like treat men on a spectrum. But on this side. There are those who are really really serious. And they get lots and lots and lots of goodness. And on this side there are those who reject God altogether and they get severity. But I might be somewhere in the middle. And I I might get off okay on the end of the day. No, this is a binary issue. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. You either believe or you don't believe. You either know the goodness of God or you're under the severity of God. It's that clear. That stark. And You must count the cost of that. You see, the goodness of God is so precious. Those gracious promises given to Abraham, the friend of God, he's reconciled to God by God's grace. He's, He's come as a stranger from a far land and he's come to know communion with God, to talk to God, to hear God speaking to his soul. We can enter those very promises to know forgiveness of sins because the man is blessed and the Lord does not impure iniquity as David would understand. When we come to know these promises we come to know an inheritance undefiled reserved in heaven for us. Abraham's inheritance for us in the new heavens and the earth wherein indwealth righteousness. You want to know by the goodness of God? Let me read to you the words again in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness, the same word for goodness used in Romans chapter 11, in his kindness and his goodness toward us through Christ Jesus. The promise given to those who believe the gospel is to know the eternal goodness of God. That's amazing. That God would share us with his kindness for time without end. But outside of Christ, there is nothing but severity. God's goodness is no evidence that he will not punish the guilty, says Haldane. We preach the goodness of God, but you should not, dear listener, presume, because God is good and kind to sinners, that therefore there is no such thing as the severity of God. There is. God is just and severe in his punishment of sinners in eternal hell. And those who believe not Christ, now the wrath of God abides upon them. You know these words. You've heard these words so, so many times. And yet some of you, you've, you've become so immune to the words. They don't hit you. Think about it. Eternity under the severity of God. I need to believe in Christ Jesus. Faith is essential. And the faith that is essential must have its object in Christ Jesus. If the Jews are cut off because of their unbelief, it is not just a general unbelief in God. Again, well, we see how they've still zeal for righteousness. They've a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not a matter of you deciding what sort of faith you want. You, know, you, you hear that. People ask that question. Do you have faith? Oh yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very spiritual person. I, I, I have faith in God. But what's your faith in? Who is the God that you trust in him? Is it the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And have you put your confidence in Christ as the only redeemer of God's elect, as the only saviour of sinners? You see, outside of Christ, there is no grace. This, this olive tree, we are united to the grace of God's promises by faith in Christ. And in the Old Testament, those who knew those promises were those who looked forward to Christ. So even in national Israel, as Paul made clear in Romans 9, there were those who were the true spiritual seed who trusted in Christ Jesus. And now we, looking back, we look back to God's Messiah. We look back to the person of Jesus of Nazareth and we put our trust in him because faith alone in Christ alone bring sinners into the promises of God we must preach Christ if we believe these things we must preach Christ we must be clear in our church services to preach Christ that that must be the central thrust of our meetings time after time after time the exaltation of Christ Jesus as presented as an object of faith for sinners We must warn against unbelief and rejection of Christ. And we'll do that before we close today. And we must pray earnestly for unbelievers. When we see the nature of unbelief, we must join with the Apostle Paul. Verse 1 of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. A burden for Jewish unbelievers. And a burden for Gentile unbelievers. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. No matter the nature of your DNA, we must pray for God to save unbelieving sinners of every nation. Well, the second thing we see regarding the message not only that grace must be received by faith in Christ alone, but grace is available to all who believe. Verse 23 And they also. If they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. I want to focus your attention on the word also. He's emphasizing here again that the Gentiles are those who have been grafted in through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he recognizes as the apostle of the Gentiles that this is the time of the Gentiles and the Gentiles have the opportunity to be saved. But he also offers that same promise to Jews. They also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. Now here I believe we have mistaken something. We've ordinarily looked at this reference to a future prospect of Jews being converted. But the language is very much present tense as Paul writes. And he's making the point that even if Jews in his day come to faith in Christ, they can be regrafted back into the olive tree. It is a recognition of the present availability of grace to all who believe. It is not the state of affairs. That the gospel is only available to Gentiles now. And regarding your future eschatology, you may see some future prospect for Israel and the salvation of Jews. But if that is your particular view regarding eschatology, please do not presume for five seconds that a Jewish person cannot be saved today. The gospel is available to whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And Paul's argument is significant in the fact he says that if you as a wild olive tree can be put back in again, it's no big deal to bring in the natural branches. And the idea there is, he's not making the point, and please don't misunderstand it, he's not suggesting for one second that it's easier for a Jew to be saved than a Gentile. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying to Gentiles, stop being so proud and arrogant that you believe it was no big deal for you to be saved. And therefore presume that you've got some privilege above the Jew that entitles you to grace when they are getting nothing but severity. We must not be proud and arrogant, but we must understand the gospel is genuinely for the whosoever. That's why Romans 10 is slapped back in the middle of these chapters. It's emphasizing that point. The gospel, as Paul preached it, is not just for Gentiles. It's for everybody. It's available to all who come. To trust in Christ Jesus. So as we close today. Two very simple closing words application. Beware unbelief. Verse 22 says this. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. On them which fail severity but toward thee goodness. If I continue. In his goodness this is consistent with the language of Hebrews and 1 Peter regarding the warnings of apostasy. It is not, we understand, suggesting that someone can be saved and lost. It is dealing with the issue of false profession and that those who make a profession of faith, if they do not continue in that profession, they prove their faith to be lacking in genuineness and therefore they are cut off in unbelief. The Lord himself taught that principle in the parable of the sower. Four soils, only the last soil, persevere. They keep the seed and they bring forth fruit. The two middle soils profess for a time and then they fall away for various reasons into what? Unbelief. They do not hear the word and keep the word. They believe in inverted commas for a time and then they fall into unbelief and ultimately they are not the people of God. And so the warning comes to the believer, as Paul writes it here, that your enjoyment of God's gospel promises comes as you believe those promises, as you believe in the gospel. That does not mean we earn the promises, it does not mean we hold on to them by our strength. Faith itself is a gift. But Paul's making the point that the genuine believer will continue. Ah, we sang the hymn. I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. He's not suggesting there's any potential for a true believer to fall away. But he's making the point that the true believers will continue to the end. And therefore they will live and die and spend eternity in the enjoyment of the goodness of God. Because they will not fall into unbelief. But if you're here today and you're heading a trajectory towards unbelief. And little by little you find yourself falling back and back in your allegiance to Christ Jesus. Now is the time to be warned. Now is the time to catch a hold of yourself, as it were. Because you fall into unbelief. You'll fall into the severity of God. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. But I also believe in the scriptural doctrine of apostasy that somebody who professes faith in Christ can fall away, proving them not to be sincere. But may God help us to ensure that we trust in Christ. Yeah, those who believe the gospel will continue. But how will we continue in these things? How do we continue in God's goodness? We do so through the ordinary means of grace. There's no secret key to this. It's being under the word, in the place of prayer, and receiving the ordinances. We talk, talk about the ordinary means of grace. Those are the things that nourish and encourage us in our faith. But also, the greatest threat to your faith is a proud heart. Beware pride. Pride is like a mustard seed. It begins in a small way and it grows and grows and grows. We often talk about faith as mustard seed, but pride is same. It Starts small, gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and Paul connects the two together and he says to them, Boast not against the branches, verse 18, and then verse 20, be not high minded, but fear. And he's making the point that a proud spirit, an arrogant spirit, hinders the faith of the believer do you know why because faith is an attitude of humility before god faith says i'm a sinner i have no hope faith says god's word is true not my mind faith says i forsake all and trust in christ alone faith is a posture of humility And proud spirit will always fight against that faith. So be not high-minded, but fear. Delight in God's covenantal grace. Thank the Lord for saving your soul. And for the Son of God, who came as a ransom for sinners. To bring us into the covenant promises made to Abraham. Let's close together in prayer, please. O eternal God and Father, we realize again that there are things in this passage that are hard to understand and hard to put together. So we pray for grace, O Lord, to examine the scriptures daily to see that these things are so, but also we pray, O Lord, for the grace that we properly apply this passage to our hearts today, that we walk humbly with thee, O God. O Lord, we need your grace. We need the Spirit of God Help us to put a proud spirit to death. To be humble before thee, our God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.